really know why they went extinct, whether it was some sort of climate change at the time. They didn't leave a note. They did not leave a note. No, it's on them then. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Appod Latch, and my name is Chuck Corn. I'm joined, as always, by the wonderful Callie Pruitt in the great state of West Virginia. I'm in the less great, but also still just fine state of Virginia. We've got a great show for you today, but we're going to kick it off with a little bit of an intro, just a small one. we got to talk about this U.S. House Speaker election. I know it's not explicitly Appalachian, but it's it's juicy. we got to do it. And uh, I want to talk about it because it's just hilarious, personally. Kevin McCarthy took him, what, 15 times to get elected Speaker of the House? And in that amount of time, he gave up pretty much all the power of the position. I know it's a little bit hyperbolic, but I, I found it funny he got so embarrassed on the House floor. I actually didn't realize that he even got the, the role that he won the election because I kind of checked out after a while. Yeah, we were up. <laughs> we were up. Um, watching the whole thing, um, my my mom, Danny, and I were all sitting on the bed in in our bedroom because we were getting ready to go to bed when they were about to adjourn. Because they had all they'd all voted to adjourn, um, and then Kevin McCarthy runs down like he had kept his composure this whole time. Then he runs down with a red card, saying, "I want to change my vote." to not adjourn and so we went got my mom out of the guest room pulled her in and we watched the whole debacle unfold if it weren't already abundantly clear that our democracy is a little bit of a shit show this was um a really great case for that i look in this this election u.s house speaker yeah. here's what i will say about it one part i genuinely really enjoyed though i don't want to celebrate this too much because dysfunction at the some of the highest levels of government, it's not great. But Kevin McCarthy, yeah. craven politician who cares about nothing other than this role, other than becoming speaker, to watch him have to just completely embarrass himself, debase himself, give up every shred of his dignity in order to get this job, and then just be repeatedly embarrassed for, what, four days? It was brilliant. I, I loved watching it. Yeah. Sacrifice Enjoy. his soul on the altar of Matt Gates. Oh, absolutely. He would sell his soul to the devil or any horrible being on this plane or any plane of any earth and the planets in our solar system and our universe if it meant that he could be speaker. So, I, I mean, great, great stuff. I, what I will say, one thing. Matt Gates, horrible human being, um, probably a child sex trafficker, which is terrible. He did say something, though, that, that was true and actually kind of funny on the House floor. He referred to Kevin McCarthy as the LeBron James of special interest money, which not only is kind of funny, but is true. And I don't think Matt Gates really deserves much credit, but uh, that was hilarious. So I'm just wanting to mention that. Was that was really funny. No, I the whole the whole thing was delightful for me I loved to see the scramble on on the right I, and I, I think if people think this is the last time like just wait until they have to pass a budget or anything <laughs> like anything anything to, to top this off before we dive into the show, I saw a tweet that just summed it up perfectly um, that said, if you're one of the people who's been saying that the U.S. government is a lot more like Veep than it is House of Cards, then congratulations on being proven right. And I think that that is absolutely the case. This last week has just been one episode of Veep after another. Oh, no notes. Completely agree. I love that. That's... um. 
So accurate, and I think anybody that's spent any time in D.C. would probably agree with that, too. Well, let's move on. Let's leave this struggle bus of our democracy for at least a little bit so we can get back on the rails or maybe further off. Who knows? We have a great episode today. We had a a controversial episode last week. We are following that up with the most controversial topic, I think, in Appalachian discussion. I don't know. Ever since we started this show like three and a half years ago, this has been the most controversial, most charged topic we've ever talked about, and we're finally addressing it here. Lacha or Lacha, what is the proper pronunciation of Appalachia? We have Dr. Kirk Hazen from the great West Virginia University, professor of linguistics and director of the West Virginia Dialect Project on to discuss this and many other things. The pronunciation, the debate of this region. I mean, this is the most controversial thing I think that we've encountered about Appalachia since starting this show, what, three, four years ago? We're finally doing it, folks. This is the debate. Yeah, yeah, the defining debate of of our generation and time. Yep, right up there with gay marriage, abortion, stem cell research, and Appalachia versus Appalachia. They're they're all in there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we we've also got for our under the radar segment later on in the show. There's a castle in Berkeley Springs, nice. West Virginia, and it was bought by a bunch of racists, and we're going to be talking about it. But first, we're going to open the show of the list like we do every week. Every week, we start out with a list that is relevant to Appalachia. We talk about it. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's serious. It's always entertaining, and it's always interesting. This week, we have Appalachia's extinct animals you may not know about. And spoiler alert, I didn't know about any of them. (laughs) Yes, I, as everybody knows on the show, I love animals. And so I wanted to talk about some of the extinct animals from our region. And no, we are not talking about elected Democrats. Hey, oh, <laughs> got him. Got him. We're talking Nailed about. It. Yeah. How to get it in. Talking about wildlife. Hey, and also politicians. The first one. Nice. Yes. Um, the first one that we have is is maybe the most well-known, I think. Um, and we're talking about the Appalachian passenger pigeon. That is the first one. So this is uh, derived from the French word for passenger um, due to the migratory habits of the species. So um, that's... It, it, so you said it's derived from the French word for passenger. Is the French word for passenger passenger? Yeah, but like with a French accent. Ah, uh. Yeah, <laughs> See, I thought I was making a joke there. And apparently not. Yeah, no. When I was little, I thought that um, I thought that it was kind of like a carrier pigeon, but instead of notes, it like literally carried passengers. Yeah, <laughs> strong pigeon. What? What? I, this list is full of absolute units. What? What? I mean, units. my God, carrying the weight of this region on its back. What a what a monster. Thick boys. Yeah, absolutely. So if you are curious as to what this might look like, it is most similar, thought to be most similar uh, biologically to the morning dove, which are still all over Appalachia. Um, They used to travel in flocks of up to 5 billion, which I think is it's crazy. Yeah, that's bullshit. That's a lie. Somebody's lying. Who's counting? How did that how did that many birds go extinct? Who, who is in charge of counting? Who? Uh, somebody. Somebody was counting. God. First of yeah. all, birds aren't real is going to have a lot of issues with this episode. Just throwing it out there. A lot. Um, but it was the most abundant bird in North America. So they were hunted by Native Americans, but hunting intensified after Europeans got here, obviously. Of course, white people have to ruin everything. 
everything, even passenger pigeons. So this is weird that I didn't know. God, nothing is safe <laughs> right. from colonialism. Any, like, not even passenger pigeons. My goodness. So pigeon meat was commercialized as cheap food, which is why they were hunted so vigorously. Now, I like, I had no idea that people ever ate pigeons. No. Nah. Like, pigeons are kind of thought of as, like, bad. And, you know, you go to a city... And you have pigeons all around. Those are not something you don't look at that and say, mm, that'd be yummy. Yeah, no. Um, but including the hunting, there were other factors that contributed to their extinction, which included shrinking of the breeding populations, um, shrinking of their habitats. Um, and there was a ton of deforestation. So in, during that time, especially in Appalachia, lots of deforestation. So a slow decline um, starting at about 1800, but was when they started kind of really tapering off. But the last confirmed wild passenger pigeon was thought to have been shot in 1901. Way to go to the asshole that did that. Way to go, yeah. team. Good job. How do they even know? Like, the, 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 that's what I'm curious about, is how they even knew. But, yeah, RIP to the passenger pigeon. Okay, so I'm going to say, on the, they went from 5 billion to zero. Yeah. Okay, so I think maybe the passenger pigeon chose the wrong profession. Maybe it was spending too much time shuttling things back and forth when it should be more of the self-preservation pigeon or the hermit pigeon. Maybe then it would actually still be around. You know, instead of your your get-your-ass-dead-from-Europeans pigeon. But we also, not on this list is the timber wolf, but although we did hunt them to extinction in Appalachia too. Pour one out. But they're, they're not on this list. <laughs> So that's the passenger pigeon, um, RIP. The next extinct animal that you may not know about is Appalachia used to have Colombian mammoths. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Which is like, okay, we're talking about like Colombia, the country. Yes. And they extend it. So Colombian mammoths came all the way up to like New York. So they were all through North America and South America. So um, they're an extinct species of mammoth um, that that went as far south as Costa Rica. Um, and they were during the Pleistocene, I believe is how you say it, epic. It was one of the last mammoth species ever. So they got to about 13 feet tall um, at the shoulders and about 10 tons or 22,000 pounds in weight. So it was one of, yeah, one of the largest species of mammoths ever had super long curved tusks, um, which were, uh, and it had like molars, you know, so it didn't have like front teeth. It was kind of like an elephant. Um, and so they used their trunks for like digging and foraging and fighting and things that, that elephants use their tusks for. So for a few thousand years before they went extinct, they coexisted with paleo Americans which were the first humans to inhabit the Americas who did hunt them for food. And they used their bones for making tools and things like that. So they, because they were around during that time, they've been found in art from these people. So very interesting. They've been like associated with myths and legends of these native populations. But they disappeared about 11,500 years ago. So sorry to the mammoths. Look, I number one, 
I am not coming off as a colonial European apologist here. And number two, I am not blaming the victims. However, if you are 22,000 pounds, you should be the apex predator, I think. But no, like how, uh, I'm just, I'm sorry. That's all, that's all, I don't have much to add here, but I'm just saying Columbia Mammoth, where did you fuck up? You should still be here. I'm probably going to get a ton of emails now from biologists that are going to explain the exact reasons why the Columbian mammoth doesn't exist, to which I say, please do. I'm sure it'll be really interesting. Anyway, I had no idea that there's any mammoths anywhere near here, so that's super interesting. Yes, I. this one I had no idea was ever anything in North America. So this next one is the giant ground sloth. So the... The ground sloth was a large ground-dwelling sloth like the ones that you know, but they didn't live in the trees. Um, but it was one of, this is, even though it was a giant one, it was one of the smallest ones to live in the world. Um, it was approximately nine feet long and weighed up to 550 pounds. And that was the smallest? It was one of the smallest. Jesus Christ. What I tell you? Thick boys. Thick boys, absolute yeah, units. wild, absolutely wild. How did they go from that to what sloths are today? I have no idea. But they had like this, if you know what a sloth looks like, they have these big, long, like kind of claw things that they they still have today. And these giant sloths just had giant claws um, for like grabbing things, defending themselves. Um, and they thought that it had like, kind of a dog-like slender skull. So instead of the sloth that we kind of know today, it had a longer nose um, and a narrow mouth that had a prehensile tongue that's kind of like an anteater. Well, I have met an Appalachian transplant sloth before. We did go to a sloth experience at the Chattanooga Zoo one time and met (laughs) Olive. Olive, real sweetheart. Yeah, I got to feed her some apples. I did it for Kristen's birthday once because she loves sloths. Uh, my theory as to why they're no longer around is that uh, those 500-pound thick boys could not navigate these treacherous Appalachian mountains. Too big, too big. They need to be like Great Plains or somewhere. Maybe. I don't know. So they there's not like a ton about why they went extinct, but the first fossils of them were found in 1905, and... Um, they they are they were have been extinct for more than ten thousand years. So we don't really know why they went extinct. Whether it was some sort of climate change at the time, whether it was um, something to do with other predators or lack of resources, um, there are some theories, but we don't exactly know why. They didn't leave a note. They did not leave a note. <laughs> well, that's on them then. This next one you're going to recognize because it's been successfully repopulated in other areas of America, but not in Appalachia. And that is the bison or the American buffalo. Another thick boy, another absolute unit. What did I tell you? So they are the classic, like, you know, you know, buck buffalo nickels. They look just like that. And if you've been out west, they are the exact same thing. Um, and they are one of two species that have lived in North America. Um, they once roamed in Appalachia in huge herds. Um, 
very like very freely in our region, but became extinct because of guess what? Commercial hunting and slaughter in the 19th century and the introduction of bovine diseases from domestic cattle. So combination of a couple of things that white people brought. <laughs> well, I was, damn it. I was going to say f- for once, not the white person's fault, but really it, it is. is. I mean, I-, I can't just shovel this onto cows. It's not their fault. Yeah, we were the ones who were dealing with the cows. So with a population in excess of 60 million in the late 18th century, the species was culled to just 541 total in the United States by 1889 absolutely decimated uh well it just we have a great track record of decimating shit in this world it's just a wonder that we haven't done it to the human race yet but give us time yeah i know right it's just very bleak out there um so the happy part of this is that there were recovery efforts um that were expanded in the mid 20th century uh with a resurgence of the population to around thirty one thousand as of march 19 2019 so They mostly have been able to repopulate in national parks and reserves, though multiple reintroductions, the species, uh, because through those introductions, the species has been able to thrive where they are. Um, However, like I said, they are still extinct in Appalachia, where they once roamed. Sad story, but I I suppose at least they're still around. Um, And you know what? If anybody wants to bring them back here, I say go for it. I have a happy one to close us out on this segment. Oh, thank God. (laughs) So the comeback for us is the river otter. So the last known sighting of a native wild otter was in the Cataloochee Creek in 1936. Now, in 1986, scientists launched a mission to bring otters back to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And the program started off really, really slow, as most things do, with otters gradually being reintroduced over time. Um, And there were 11. This is great. I actually have this timeline, which is really wonderful. So in 1986, 11 otters were taken um, and released in North Carolina. In 1988, 14 otters were from South Carolina and Louisiana were released in the Little River. Then in 1992, six otters were released in Cataloochee Creek, four in Hazel Creek, and two in the Little River again. And in 1994, 100 otters from Louisiana were released in a variety of streams all throughout Appalachia. First of all, good job, science, I think, scientists. Um, I want to be part of an otter rehabilitation mission so if anybody is planning another one hit us up this is a a good happy story i love to see it um congratulations to river otters i I guess congratulations is in order they did it um and uh good (laughs) job white people for not fucking this one up they originally fucked it up it was from hunting well shit okay but they did it was it was a white guy who led the project it w- well, it would have been ironic if it were a non-white person that had, but uh, well, great list full of thick boys, absolute units. Love to see it. One thing not on the list, though, worth honorable mention is Mothman and other cryptids because they're still out there. They're not extinct, and they're most certainly not American barn owls. All right, well, that was our beautiful list. Let's get into the announcements before we get into our interview. Kelly, you have a brief announcement about our new book club, Appalachian Bookshelf. Excited about it. Appalachian Bookshelf. I'm I, I 
Kendra and I have been working so hard on this. Kendra from Reed Appalachia, our great friend and collaborator on this project. So we set out to create a platform where we could discuss books that center around Appalachian stories and lived experiences and the diversity and beauty and the problems that face our region. Um, and little did we know that people were going to respond so strongly to that. Um, we had over 500 people from across the region and across the world um, to sign up to be part of the ground floor of Appalachian Bookshelf. We're excited if you are one of them, um, and hopefully you're excited about our first pick. Um, if you do sign up, you will always be the first to know who our picks are. Um, you will always be the first to weigh into our discussions. And as we go on this journey together, your feedback will always be welcome. We chose the book that we chose, which is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, because we want to choose books from across genres that will spark discussion and, and sometimes books that will challenge us. And so we for each of these books, we're going to have a weekly set of questions and then we're going to follow up the quarterly read with an Appalachia read Appalachia podcast episode where we discuss the book. Um, and so this book made uh, like a hundred top lists of 2022 um, for major publications like, you know, real like the New York Times, but like huge, huge publications were saying this was one of the top books of 2022. Um, and we wanted to see more discussion of it from readers in the region, because most of the content we were finding about it was not from people in Appalachia. So as Kendra and I and Chuck were reading this book, we were left with these questions that we want to ask you. And this is the reason that you should get involved in this conversation and sign up for Appalachia and Bookshelf. Just so you know, uh, this book is available bookshock.org, Libro FM, Apple Books, Amazon, your local bookstore. Please, please buy from your indie local bookstores. Um, and it's wherever books are sold. So that is a little bit about Appalachian Bookshelf. Chuck, how are you feeling about it? That was perfect. No notes other than I would encourage you all to also use your local library. If you don't want to buy the book, you can borrow it from your library. Sign up for a library card if you don't already have one. And most libraries also are functional with Libby, which is the audio component too. So you can get audio books like that. You can borrow them without even having to go into the library. So I would highly encourage you all to utilize that if you aren't already. But otherwise, yeah, I think you covered it perfectly. Last announcement, Patreon. Patreon.com slash AppodLatch. You can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and support us, support the the intrepid podcasters that you are listening to today as we navigate the wilderness of Appalachia through your ear holes or something like that. We do weekly exclusives. We're doing, we're revamping our bonus series. And we're going to be working more on that very soon. And uh, we've got a bunch of other stuff, live hangouts, all that jazz. And uh, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon.com slash Latch. I know I repeated myself, but that's how important it is to us because it helps fund this operation, which ain't cheap. And when you join, you get the honor, the privilege, the benefit of a custom limerick written by Callie Pruitt herself. We've got a new one this week, Callie. Rattle it off. Very excited to welcome Lindsay to the Patreon crew. Raise a New Year's glass to Lindsay. When she joined, we flew into a frenzy. A pick and grin pal, she raised our morale. Her greatness and grace we all can see. Yeah, the uh, Appalachian passenger pigeon flew into such a frenzy that they all went extinct. That's how excited they were. <laughs> 
Just kidding. Just kidding. That was way before Patreon existed. Don't worry, guys. It's okay. Great Limerick again, as always. If you want a Limerick and other cool stuff and you just want to support us and Appalachian Homegrown Media, subscribe to our Patreon. Well, let's get into our interview and the main topic discussion. We had Professor Kirk Hazen on. He is a professor of linguistics and director of the West Virginia Dialect Project. One of the foremost experts on Appalachian dialects, Appalachian Englishes. In fact, he's got a great book out about it, and I'll link it in the show notes. You should check it out. It's from West Virginia University Press. He is someone who has actually studied phonetic variations of English in Appalachian, studied how people say Appalachian and other things in Appalachian Englishes. The best person to have on this show to talk about this very subject. I am very, very excited about it. It was a great conversation. I know we both really, really enjoyed it, and we think that you all will too. This is a, it's kind of a wide-reaching conversation, but we did address the subject of, is there a proper pronunciation of Appalachian? If so, what is it? Callie, your thoughts on this interview? I, I mean, I, I kind of know how you feel about it. I thought it was an excellent interview, but w- would love for you to share some of your insight on it before we get into it. Yeah, I get into it in the in the interview, but I, um, I, I really do have strong opinions on this, and I thought that Dr. Hazen was so knowledgeable and so um, graceful in his answers to our questions that were very pointed. You know, we we didn't we didn't hold back. We really asked the tough questions, and I I really this conversation was so enjoyable and really enlightening to me. There were a lot of things in it that that he talked about that I did not know, um, and. That is it's get dive the ability to dive into someone else's specialty and to be able to kind of get a look on the inside of linguistics, which is something that I almost never look at. That was a really, really cool experience. Absolutely. I love when we have people who are are professionals yeah. in lingu- linguistics and and languages in general because it is such a I think it's a deeply explored area in academia, but not as much, at least in my experience, outside of there with respect to Appalachia, so I really loved it. Um, I know that you get into your opinion on Latcha versus Lacia in the interview, but I want to ask you, were you satisfied with this interview? Were you satisfied with where things went? I think I did. I, I think I did feel satisfied with his answer um, because uh, there's still so much to learn, and it also, uh, because there's a discussion of proper nouns versus a kind of an a regional kind of discussion um i think that that was the most interesting part for me yeah absolutely i did too and i mean i i think uh, i've mentioned this before but i have a more nuanced view of pronunciations than i did when we first started this podcast several years ago i was a bit of hardliner on latcha and as i read more and learned more and heard more from other people i kind of developed a little bit more nuance around it and that'll probably get me canceled on at least one social media platform in the Appalachia sphere. And if that's the case, then so be it. And I feel like I feel like you and I are on two different sides. Like I feel like you're more you're more um, fluid, and I am on the more hard and fast side, which I think is interesting. Yeah, we're like liberals and conservatives when it comes to uh, gender and gender theory. <laughs> um, I'm the conservative. No, I know. See, see, feels weird. I don't like it. Anyway, let's get into our interview with Dr. Kirk Hazen.
Where are you from in North Carolina? Uh, I'm from Canton, North Carolina, which is just west of Asheville. Yep. Yep. Cool. Cool. Wonderful. Also, it looks like you've got a great dog behind you. Love a great dog in an interview. Yeah, this is Luna. Uh, We have three dogs and three cats. So my kind of person. Yeah, this is our German shepherd here. Say hey, Luna. Well, Kirk, this is really exciting. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while about all of these things. And in fact, I would want to put a plug for your book, Appalachian Englishes in the 21st Century, which I'll link to in the show notes. It's a great read of just a lot of the stuff that you've studied, especially about Appalachia. And I think to start, I would love for you to maybe explain a little bit about your background in linguistics and specifically how you became interested in that and how you became interested in in studying Appalachian dialect and Appalachian language in general. Sure, sure. I was originally an English and French major back in the undergrad days. I went to grad school and I happened to have as my mentor, Walt Wolfram, who is someone who helped um, to found the field of sociolinguistics. Wow. So it's this sub sub field of linguistics that looks at language variation. That could be dialects, that could be language history, and that involves all the social factors that might go along with it. That's anything you want demographically, personal identity, uh, persona, uh, anything you would like in there. So I got involved there. We, our very first project was to go to Ocracoke, North Carolina. And we did interviews and did a conference presentation later the very same semester. And um, just kept going from then on out. So within the realm of dialects and language variation, I got very lucky and got with one of the best people in the world who is still going. He, Walt Wolfram is still working at NC State and still making documentaries, all kinds of things. His documentary, Mountain Talk, is the famous one, the most widely viewed, um, about a total of 10 million views on that documentary for wow. Appalachian dialects. That's incredible. Um, how, how did you get interested in Appalachian dialects in particular? Because it's definitely something that is fairly specific. And I imagine there's, I mean, I could be completely ignorant to this, but I imagine there's not a lot of people who specialize in that. No, I, if you're for specialization, maybe six or so, the grand dean of this sub sub specialty was Michael Montgomery. He passed away a few years ago. And he was at the University of South Carolina, but originally from the hills of Tennessee. And he led the field for a very long time. Um, I got interested during my master's thesis work on Ocracoke because of the purported, the supposed connections between some of the dialect features on the Outer Banks and some of the dialect features in Appalachia. And there was some echoes in there that we pursued um, just not as robust as someone who does quantitative work would like. And our field is a both qualitative and quantitative in what we do. That's super interesting, especially from a data collection standpoint. And I actually think it's a a good transition to the West Virginia Dialect Project, which I'd love to ask you about. It's a really unique program, uh, I, I believe, at West Virginia University, and you're the director of it. I'd love for you to speak a little bit about that and what you do with it. So the West Virginia Dialect Project, WVDP, 
is a very loose group of uh, me and undergraduate students, sometimes graduate students, but mostly undergrads at West Virginia University. And since 1998, we have collected interviews and analyzed those to look at the different varieties in and around West Virginia primarily, although some of our speakers come from a few other places in there. So we are looking at language variation, how things have changed over time, different dialects currently, and then doing public programs where we can, where we have talked to school groups, where we have talked to uh, nursing organizations, medical schools, just a wide range, social workers, wide range of folks about dialects in Appalachia. Sometimes it's much more like uh, Mountaineer Week at WVU, and sometimes it's much more for, you know, I gave a regular talk for years at uh, for incoming class, the first year class of medical students at WVU, and that was what kind of folk terms are out there for different kinds of ailments, and what kind of communication barriers might be there? Um, there is an entire realm of linguistics, which uh, called forensic linguistics, where, um, and this is something uh, that social linguists do at a time, where we also talk to groups of lawyers about cross-cultural communication in the courtroom. That's something that's been big uh for years now but especially since the trayvon martin trial so th that's there's a whole nother avenue that's out there which we um you know would be ideal to expand into but it's it's been prominent in a few other areas so that's so fascinating um i i mean i feel like that's like a whole other interview that i want to do with you yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm interested, I mean, broadly, when you, when you hear, um, Appalachian accents, um, in media or talked about, it's often kind of muddled with a Southern accent. And so I'm wondering, uh, you know, when you look at these accents and when you try to talk to people about these differences, what are some of the differences that are really key between an Appalachian dialect and accent and a Southern dialect and accent? So what do we identify within the dialects to distinguish it from Southern? A, a couple of stories on that front. Uh, we generally divide, and this is Daniel Hasty's chapter in that book, but we generally divide Appalachian varieties into Northern and Southern groups, large groupings. Uh, there's never been one, one variety of English in Appalachia. There's always been multiple. The more Southern varieties of Appalachia have many Southern features. I mean, that, that is, they are a, they are a subtype of Southern English in general. There's a few distinguishing qualities that usually mark them. And I'd be glad to get into those details. Um, but before we even get there, I'll tell you once I gave a talk at WVU early on, famous historian, of Appalachia asked me, because I had talked about all these different dialect features through the talk, a famous historian asked me, why don't you just study the dialect features that are unique to Appalachia? I said, because there would be nothing to study. Very disappointed with that answer he was. In Appalachia, there's all kinds of combinations of features, 
but there's not a set of features that can be found in Appalachia and not other places. Dialect-wise, Appalachia is a transition zone, transition from east to west, transition from north to south. So there's a huge amount of variation within whatever you might want to deem as Appalachia, which I will not solve here. (laughs) Which we we. did not even (laughs) try to solve in that book either. Um, The authors of that book had uh, not only disagreements with each other, I mean, just like, hey, no, I think it's here. No, I think it's there. But with me also, like, Kirk, can't we just cut it off here? I'm like, yeah, let's just consider everything and then say, but... And so there was a lot of negotiation, even amongst uh, scholars um, of of dialects in Appalachia. So to get to a specific detail, there is a feature that all y'all know, all your listeners know, we call this feature ion gliding, or if you want a fancier term, ion monophthongization. But this ion gliding is when you get a word like mine as mine mile, mile, and that I vowel becomes an ah. That ah can shift forward, it can shift back in the mouth. There's lots of different movements that distinguish it. In most of the U.S. South, this ion gliding happens before sounds where your vocal folds are vibrating. So like mile, mine, ride, but not for most of the modern U.S. South before sounds where your vocal folds are whispering, where they're not vibrating. So in words like pipe, wife, knife. In those places, you can have people who say rod, but then say wife. In parts of Appalachia, you get rod and wife, like, and you get the same feature, the I, that's an ah, before the sounds that are whispered, before the ones that are voiceless also. That's a distinguishing feature for parts of the Southern Appalachia. Some parts of, let's say, Logan County, Wyoming County, Boone County, West Virginia. But then we are making divisions by different social factors and not just region, which is a case in many places, but especially true for that feature. So that's one instance of, of a feature. There, There is at least one other broad one if you want to hear about it. Yeah, please do. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So the other one uh, that and this is being pulled from a, uh, I look around like I know where all my books are. I just moved a bunch of books. Um, a lot of this information is being pulled from this book, the Atlas of North American English by LaBeouf, Boberg, LaBeouf, Ash, and Boberg. And this book is this wonderful compilation, can be found at many academic libraries. Um, it's online also, there's all kinds of resources. Um, but this book did a large survey of the US and one of the features they picked to divide the South from other areas, there's a very hard line of what's called ash breaking. In a word like bag or hat, or um, let's keep away from nasals, bag or hat, um, the a vowel can become two parts in the South, hat, bag, 
and you get a movement of that vowel. That's considered socially a Southern feature. It seems to be a pretty hard line somewhere at the bottom of West Virginia, somewhere below Charleston. I mean, it do, the line's a little broad, but somewhere in there, there is a pretty hard line of Southern folks have it, Northern folks don't. Very small difference in terms of what goes on, but enough to socially trigger people. Humans are very, very good at distinguishing social differences based off of vocal cues. Absolutely fascinating. Oh my gosh, this conversation, I already know our listeners are going to really appreciate this. Um, I mean, these, these are things that I think people talk about all the time and, and, uh, and even if they don't talk about them, they recognize them when they hear about them. Uh, And defining that as a, as a cultural feature, I think is, is like very, it's very helpful. Um, And I'm just so fascinated by this conversation. Yeah, I agree. And I think the point you mentioned about Appalachia being a transition zone is a really interesting and important one. And I think it actually is a great transition to the large question that we wanted to ask and kind of have a discussion around, which is pronunciation. Now, my my view on it has evolved, I think, and it was in part because of some of the research and some of the work that you've done, I think, with the West Virginia Dialect Project. You had a survey uh, that you put out a couple of years ago where you surveyed people from all throughout the region of how they pronounce it. And it came up with some really interesting data. And I was hoping that you could speak to that and explain a little bit of the background there and some of the results. Yes. So we did a general online survey and we did not restrict it to just folks in Appalachia, but we did have them put into both their hometown zip code and their current zip code. And there's one of the challenges was even gathering like how many different pronunciations are there? There seem to be about four, but the two main ones are Appalachia and Appalachia, and then some variations of, of consonants in there. And you're right, I the amount of vitriol that goes into people discussing this is, is quite something. In general, we found that majority of folks within Appalachia say Appalachia, even if they say the Appalachian Mountains or something else, but for the region itself. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think it was at least like three, three, fourths, maybe 70%. But and what we found and what I had heard from my own students at WVU, there are people who grow up within Appalachia who their entire lives, their parents too, who have the other pronunciation, Appalachia, as the only one they know, and they just as a self as a thing. That doesn't mean they consider themselves Appalachian, or they they just said, no, I'm just from that county, I'm from that state. So they it's much more county. But so we can't say that there are there's an inside strict and outside pronunciation. There's a preferred inside pronunciation, but that's a that's a percentage uh, preference, not a categorical preference in that way. So there's variation in terms of the region within the region itself. So I I 
I guess I am kind of more on the hard and fast side of this. Um, that's, I mean, I, I, I definitely am open, but I, I have a, this theory. Um, I mean, we know that sociologists from outside of the region came in with, with literally lists of like, here's the average American family. Father is yeah. present, you know, all of the, and then, and then here's the Appalachian pres- family and like the dad really there and like it's it's basically talking about the the culture of deficiency in Appalachia and my 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 theory which is based just on what I've read and and my own I mean it's not based on any scientific sense is why I want to ask you about it is that many people came into Appalachia not knowing the culture, being given a, you know, these Teach for America people and these sociologists from outside of the region and maybe spread this pronunciation that that wasn't native to the people who were there. And I'm wondering if there's any basis in in the origination of these words and the history of the two pronunciations, despite, you know, where we have the pronunciations, you know, falling on percentage lines today, you yeah. know, where these came from. And if one of them is more native to the region, to the, or is one more historic um, and is one more an introduction since the war on poverty. Right, right. I, I totally agree um, with the off-putting and wild assumptions that many academics had coming into the region, the uh, the othering of people, the uh, sort of exotic, exoticization of the region, um, something Elizabeth Pat talks about uh, expertly in, in uh, uh, a couple of her books. The... One of the troubles with the the term itself, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but one of the one of the reasons why the term has so much variation is just the number of syllables it has allows people to put differential stress on different parts. So one thing that comes up in variation in English, and this is a northern southern thing, is where the stress goes. So my mother-in-law from Warren County, North Carolina, says words Detroit and CMET and police. And she puts that stress up front on those words. I'm from outside Detroit, and I say Detroit and CMET and police. So we have stress in different places. Some of that is going on with this term is that you're getting stress in different places. So there might be a influence of stress patterns on different regions. But one of the things we haven't found, I say haven't found the sense it could be there, we just don't know. We haven't found any regional groupings of pronunciations. I can, I can, it used to be, we could give a map of the word greasy versus greasy. That's really greasy chicken versus really greasy chicken. There was a hard and fast line. North of that line was the northern U.S. South of that line with greasy southern U.S. That was that was in place. That one's broken up a bit. We don't have anything like that for the pronunciation of Appalachia. I wish we did. Um, I, it would be a great thing to put together. Really popular. So there's there's the inherent variation that goes with the word. But two, 
the term itself ha has been, at least in my experience, such a strictly academic term and one just kept to the realm of people who talked about the region as a region that it is so rarely used as a factor of identification. Paul Reed, now the University of Alabama, grew up in Eastern Tennessee and did does talk about that term as a self point of self-identification. I assume that's a little bit true in the mountains of North Carolina too, Kelly? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, particularly because they're like... Appalachian State University yeah. is a proper noun. And, you know, that's what I'm literally wearing an App State shirt right now. Um, that's where I went to school. And, and you know, that's there's no there's no you're not going to find a chancellor of App State who says Appalachian State. You know, that's yeah. just not that's just not going to happen. And so I think that particularly where I grew up um, and and with my background and going to App State, that seems like there is a very hard and fast way to say Appalachian. Right, right. And I think with those, that anchors it down for people, that it gives them a point of reference in there. In our interviews in West Virginia, we did not have anyone say that the term Appalachia was a something they grew up with that they identify with. They identify with the counties, they identify with the state, maybe just, you know, being from the country and not from the town. There was a lot of town uh, country divide, but uh, we didn't have that term. So there wasn't that much of an anchor in that way. So yeah, it, to some extent, sense. yeah, being a mountaineer. So I think part of the, um, part of the variation in there is that, it is a point of identity reference for some parts of the region, but, but not for other parts. So therefore it can flood around some, and unless you're doing a craft fair or something to do with college, then it's not gonna come up. Most of yeah. my students say they had not used the term in any you know productive way until they came to college and then yeah. it became a thing. That's absolutely fascinating. And and I, I really appreciate this conversation because, you know, I one of the main differences that I've seen in the last few years is with Frankie. You're okay, buddy. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, one of the main differences that I've seen in the last few years is that App State is is ensuring I really what's going on, bud? Um, App State is ensuring that ESPN people, uh, moderators, and they're saying Appalachian State because um, yeah. they're like, so that's been really a huge way that we have been, we've been different. I'm sorry that that yeah. didn't make any sense. But I'm going to get Frankie no. to chill. Oh, I, I, I completely agree with this. I went to the university founded by Thomas Green Clemson down in South Carolina for my undergrad. And the number of times that sports announcers mispronounce the name of that university is just obscene. It is pronounced by anybody who went to the school as Clemson in there. There's a there is a P voiceless inserted in that word. That's the pronunciation. So all the Brett Musburger and oh, so many other people at Clemson. What are you doing? You're killing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I are you. Uh, institution ever put out an actual pronunciation guide, but it's a great idea. I love that App State did that. 
By the way, there's a very famous uh, social linguist, uh, one of the leading social linguists in the country, Mary Kahn, who did her undergrad degree at Appalachian State. So she's someone who's done some work in the region, but now works at Kansas State University. So produce some good people, I would say. Yeah. Uh, there is another university connection, though, to Appalachia and promoting pronunciation and promoting ideas about it. So with the entire Elizabethan English myth that is so prominent, one of the oldest writings we have that actually lays this out is by a university president, by William Goodell Frost, who was the president of Berea College. Now, his promotion, this was part of an overall kind of early promotion campaign. So he was doing it for the most uh, upstanding of reasons. He wanted people to come to Berea College. He wrote about our modern day ancestors. Oh, these people, they don't have bad language. They're frozen in time. It is quaint language from another era. So it was a defense set up to promote the university in that way. So yeah, there, there's something to be said for the impact of promotion that goes with university advertising. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have seen a difference uh, since they did release that guide. Um, Chuck, I feel like I've taken up a lot of time. <laughs> Do you have one that we want to go to? Oh, no, you're fine. Um, I, I think well, you have one last one, and I think you should roll with that one because this has been perfect. Awesome. Um, so I, we wanted to kind of end on a fun note um, and and ask you if there are just some interesting tidbits of Appalachian language that you've come across that you'd like to share with our audience or that you think that they might appreciate. This is such a challenging question, actually. Um, one, and it's a challenging question because there's a lot of variation out there. And some of the variation that I find most interesting may not be the most interesting for other people. Um, I wish I could give you a term, like a vocab word, like, oh, this is the most Appalachian of Appalachian ones. I can tell you, though, if your listeners, grabbing another book, if your listeners ever want, um, the Dictionary of American Regional English has lots of terms from all over rural America collected over a number of years. And they have in their index a listing of Appalachia. And it has all the terms that appear in Appalachia. What you find is very few of those actually end up being unique to Appalachia. So they're always shared with one other region. And that's actually a very interesting finding. The one that used to be more unique, but then was either found in other places or spread to other places was the term whistle pig for groundhog. Is that what did you grow up with that one at all, Kelly? Did you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I don't I don't know where I heard it, but I definitely heard it growing up. Yeah, it, it's a very fun term. Um, it has a, a, this nice metaphor to it. And it nowadays, if you Google whistle pig, it's actually a distillery, I believe, in Vermont. Um, so it's been picked up. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they have good whiskey. Uh, please send some on to us all. 
But um, it's no longer just an Appalachian term in that way. So it's it's spread out there. But beyond that, and, and maybe a few others, there's not any unique terms. So one of the things I find most interesting about Appalachia is it's not behind the times in any way, shape, or form. It's very innovative. When a feature like quotative like, introducing a quote with be like, I was like, no, I'm not going to go. And you give the quote and you have this frame for it. When that came into the U.S. in the late 1970s, early 1980s, it was in Appalachia at about the same time. There was no lag. There was no delay. We see its upswing in a huge way. In Appalachia, just like we see it all around the rest of the world. So that kind of variation goes on. There's other kinds. There's one where all of us delete the consonants at the end of a word. So if you think of a, a combo word like West side, no one in English, no normal English speaker says West side. Everybody says West side. And that T at the end of West goes poof. This is just part of pronouncing English as a native English speaker. It's what we do. We found that in West Virginia, the rates of that deletion are consistently higher across all the speakers with no social impact. So in other words, there were no social differentiations. It just happens, no one notices. Another feature, uh, the voiceless W, like in thins or um, which, which, that's something you can tell between the W spelling and the WH spelling. That's something that's been fighting it out for a very long time, since Old English. And that variation is dwindling down nowadays. The wuh, the W forms beating up the other one, not in spelling, just in pronunciation. But throughout the South, throughout parts of Appalachia and in England and other English-speaking areas, you can still find folks who have which, which as separate pronunciations in there. Um, so, and all that means is that we have variation like other areas have variation. We have a lot of innovations also. Uh, there's shifts in vowels, very involved discussion of vowel movements that uh, we have picked up in two ways. Some of it, just like the U.S. South did, um, uh, West Virginia on down did also. And then there's one called American Raising, where the I vowel in, like in Myler Mine, gets raised up in the mouth. This is a newer phenomenon, or at least newer in the sense that we've learned about in the last decade or so. And it's similar to what you find with Canadian raising in something like bike being pronounced as bike. Or, um, but there they also have house as hoose. So they have the vowels raised up in the mouth. We have I raising, that American raising, just like we find in the Midwest, in, in, just like we find in Missouri, just like we find in other parts of the US at the same time. So again, no lag and changes going on. 
So, uh, you know, what I find to be interesting is that there's lots of diversity in varieties of English and Appalachia. They're moving along just like other varieties in evolving. And the difference is that there's this overarching myth and stereotype that people want to keep going about the varieties and the variation doesn't square with that. So there's there's some friction there. There's a lot to be said about that, that myth also. That is fascinating. I, I love this conversation so much. Uh, Kelly, do you have any other questions before we wrap? I just want to have you back on. <laughs> I, I, I like talking about this stuff all the time. If you have specific questions or something you want me to look up, I'll go to one of these books, go to the Oxford English Dictionary and figure stuff out for you. Give our best guess. Fabulous. That's awesome. Well, Kirk, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. And we know that our listeners will too. Yeah. Thank oh, you so absolutely. much. And sorry, sorry for the interruption with Frankie saw a dog outside. <laughs> no, I'm really I, excited. I I fully understand. Luna's still sleeping it through. We're actually in a thunderstorm right now, so I'm just glad I still have power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, this was just a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. Excellent. If you have questions in the future, please let me know. There might be some days that I don't Well, that was a fascinating conversation, and I just want to state for the record, because I don't know if I was clear throughout, I pronounce it Latcha. I just don't want to gatekeep around the term, and if you pronounce it Latcha, then so be it. And I know that people are going to have differing opinions on that. That's fine. If you want to cancel me for it and excoriate me via email, that's also fine. But let's move on. We've got a heck of a segment to end this show under the radar in Appalachia. And it's about some heavy subject matter. It's about racists. And, uh, you know, whenever I talk about heavy subject matters, I always like to get some CBD from Cornbread Hemp beforehand. Our sponsor, yep, you know, we had to squeeze it in before the end of the show. We'll make it quick and sweet. We love Cornbread Hemp CBD. They have some of the best CBD products on the market. It's all organic, USDA certified. Flower only full spectrum. It is a Kentucky-based family-owned company. No corporate cash. It's all crowdfunded. We love them. Cornbread Hemp is a fantastic organization and company. They're a powerful advocate for cannabis reform. Some of my favorite stuff is the THC gummies. You're going to love them. They've got up to two milligrams of THC in them, which is pretty freaking dope. I'm a big fan. Callie is too. I know it because she's had it. And uh, unfortunately, since she's been pregnant, she hasn't been able to um, enjoy the cornbread hemp that she gets. But she is spreading the love around. I I am recommending these to everyone. Um, I, I think that these are so much better. They're so much better than anything I've ever tried CBD wise before. Um, I miss being able to take them. I because y'all know pregnancy and sleep do not go together. Um, and I I think that these are uh they not only are they delicious, um, but they really do help and. For me, I would take them because I have chronic pain and it is difficult to kind of notch your pain down. And I think that these were able to kind of reach that place where they were able to to, to touch that pain in a great way and, and to just turn it down, turn my brain a little bit, you know, a little bit calmer and and I was just able to face more with them. I love these and I hope that you I hope you try them. Take a chance. I mean, they're 
absolutely fabulous. All of their products. Absolutely. Are. Even the CBD for the pets. In fact, I wish I had some right now for Big Dog because she's getting a little rowdy. It hasn't, uh, it's, it's dinner time. She hasn't eaten yet, so she's getting pissed. Anyway, use our code BANJO, B A N J O, at checkout to get 25% off. That's a monster discount. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, thick with two C's discount. 25% off at checkout. That's cornbreadhemp.com. Check them out. Support them. You're supporting a, a Kentucky-based family-owned company that fights for cannabis reform. And if you're supporting them, then you're supporting <laughs> us, too. Thank you. And uh, let's get to Under the Radar. It's pretty wild. Under the Radar today, we're, uh, we're going to be in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. Berkeley Springs in beautiful eastern panhandle of West Virginia, Morgan County. Berkeley Springs, known as America's first spa. I'm not sure why I think it's because George Washington maybe fucked around in a tub there at some point. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure that somebody listening to this is going to correct me and tell me some story that I'll learn, and I can share it on the next episode. Cute. Yes, yes, nothing sexier than America's first president in a tub. If you've ever driven through Berkeley Springs, then there is a good chance that you have seen a castle on a hill. Not making that up, it's a real thing. The Samuel Taylor suit, I think. It's, it seems like it should be sweet, but I guess it's suit. Cottage, also known as Berkeley Castle, Berkeley Springs Castle, located on a hill. It, it, it was built in the late 1890s, I think, by some rich white feller. I'm not really sure about the specific history, but that's also not entirely important to uh, what it is today. <laughs> Three years ago, and, and this is relevant today because a large Washington Post article came out about it a couple of days ago. Three years ago, it was bought by the V-Dare Foundation. The V-Dare Foundation, if you haven't ever heard of them, is a racist anti-immigration movement associated with white nationalism. It was founded by Peter Brimlow, 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 I don't know, uh, and his wife Lydia, who both deny being white nationalists, and not mm. that it really matters, but I found that there there's a giant chasm a in between fan. their two ages. Uh, she's literally almost double, or he's literally almost double her age. Not that that <laughs> matters, but just to add to kind of the weirdness here. Gross. Yes, very. So the other funny part, though, not really haha funny, but just like ironic funny, as you'll come to learn. Peter was born in the U.K., and now lives in the U.S., and he's uh, anti-immigration. Anyway, V. Dare regularly publishes writers who argue that America's white majority, an essential character being threatened by people of color, and who use racist pseudoscience to argue that white people are superior to other races. They claim that the castle is a fortress from which they could proclaim their views, hmm. projectile vomit, and they have said that diversity is weakness. This is bad, not only because imagine living in a small town like this. A small town is very beautiful. They have a very really like a really wonderful Christmas celebration every year. Looks like a little Hallmark town. Imagine just having all of that upended by this racist organization. Just this dark cloud come over your your tiny little town, which obviously it all they all have their quirks and hiccups every now and then. But this just kind of has rocketed Berkeley Springs actually to the front page of the Washington Post the other day. It was actually um, partially above the fold on, on their print edition a couple of days ago. Um, I, I don't, you know, this is something that is happening more and more often, not this specifically, but just white nationalists and these racist organizations feeling more emboldened and more comfortable to have a public face and proclaim their ideology as if there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I just want to read a quote from one of the citizens of Berkeley Springs. 
He said, I am concerned about our little town suddenly coming to be known as the place where V-Dare is. You know, the cute little white yeah. supremacist town in West Virginia. That scares the crap out of me. I relate to that. I, I think that that's, that's a really, that's a very human quote. And I I think that you're totally right that this impacts, you know, it's a small town, but it does impact them. Um and this, the, the V-Dare is bad. bad. Um, and it's really funny that Peter is from the UK because their site has declared its mission as, quote, informing the fight to keep America American. <laughs> right. Okay. See. Which, like, the, the subtext is white. And how can they, I just. Uh. It, you know, and, and with all of these, like, racist, stupid ideologies, there's always so much of just hypocrisy. I mean, look at Adolf Hitler who claimed mm-hmm. that the superior race was these like blonde-haired, blue-eyed people, neither of which he had, but somehow he he got a pass, right. I guess. And these people are all morons, but that being aside, the the concern about Berkeley Springs being branded that is a real one because look, this is Right. National news now. Berkeley Springs is a very small town. And look at what happened with Charlottesville, Virginia, which is, right. you know, much larger comparatively than Berkeley Springs. You look what happened with the, the Unite, the, was it the Unite the Right rally? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. The one that happened in like 20, God, 2017, wow. where, uh, where Can't Donald Trump. It was that long ago. Yeah. It's, um, my goodness. Time flies, uh, in weird ways. It was the one where Donald Trump said that there were very fine people on both sides, and and, uh, and there weren't. There weren't. And now right. a lot of people associate Charlottesville with that, with that rally, with white nationalists, even though, like, you know, the University of Virginia is there and so many other things. That's a really big concern. I mean, obviously, it's not, like, right. the chief concern. The chief concern is the safety and well-being of the people in Berkeley Springs, which, like, there was also quotes from um, immigrant families and business owners uh uh, in that article that were very upset and very concerned by this. And I mean, rightly so. And because like, I believe that, that they host like a Christmas celebration at the castle each year. Yeah. They like an open house type. Yeah. Thing. So people, I, I think that to me is what's probably most concerning about it is because people who may not know about V dare or understand what type of stuff they're pushing may go to that and just see these people like, oh, they seem nice. And that's kind of how people get looped into that stuff and get sucked in. There was a woman who was a business owner uh, who was quoted in that article saying, well, you know, I think they're just, they have the freedom to do what they want, which they do, First Amendment, all, la, 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 you know, you have a, you, you, <laughs> you do have the freedom to be a racist asshole in this country, not disputing that. But arguing that, like, oh, they just are anti-immigrant, or they're anti-immigration. They think that, that you know, the problem at the border, that's how it's always labeled. Oh, the, you know, the, the crisis at the border. That is a massive oversimplification of what these people are about. Yeah, I, I mean, V-Dare is one of the more, I would say, like, higher-functioning hate groups because they, they fly right under the radar. They've had people like Ann Coulter write things for them. And, and I mean, she is a very, she's a very mainstream person that people know um pat buchanan Buchanan. who was on morning fucking joe for how many years spouting his bullshit and and so the these are the kind of people that i believe are like extra dangerous and that you really have to keep that 
that shrewd eye out for um, and be really discerning when you hear them say things like we're not we're not racist, but diversity is weakness. You know, they, they, everything that they use is very coded language and it's meant to be palatable to the average conservative ear, even though if you had more of a discerning ear, you know, you you would be able to make this out. But these are folks who are trying to they're trying to infiltrate the mainstream media. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's the biggest concern, because, look, I don't care if this is controversial to say on this show, uh, like uh, most conservatives I know are not racist and are not anti-immigrant. In fact, so many conservatives are pro-immigration for many reasons, some of which I don't agree with, even though I agree with the end result. But this is this is a fringe viewpoint that is trying to be mainstream yeah. and is is being successful at that. I mean, if you look like they're getting they get money, they get a lot of money, a lot of donor support from typical conservative donor programs. Yeah. If you look into it and, you know, the fact that they could buy this medieval style mansion for $1.5 million tells you a lot. Yeah. Oh boy. This is, I just, I feel bad for the people of Berkeley Springs. Yeah. I really do because Berkeley Springs, and I have friends who live there. It is a wonderful little town. It is, it is a wonderful little right town. Right out of that a Hallmark just, movie during the holidays. It had the unfortunate fate of being blessed with the Samuel Taylor suit cottage. And therefore, has now been ricocheted and jettisoned to the top of the news. And it's just, it's unfortunate. Again, like I I know that we usually try to tie an action item to this. I think what I would say is if you're in or around Berkeley Springs, I know that there are activists who have been protesting this, get in touch with them. and, And if we find more information out about them, we're happy to share it. Like, get in touch with them and figure out what people are doing to push back against this. Because, look, like, even a small town, there are highly motivated people who I have no doubt are going to be raising a lot of hell about this, as they should. And we will, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And don't go to their open house. You know, if you want to spend time in Berkeley Springs, go visit other shops. Immigrant-owned places. places. Um, yes. So just don't participate in in this racism um, in any way, even if it's just to visit. In fact, if you know of any immigrant-owned businesses in the Berkeley Springs area, please share them with us so that we can amplify them and help spread the word about them. Amen. Word up. All right, well... All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We will be back next week for more at Pod Latcha. You at Pod Latchins, get out of here. We love you. Good night.